Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome back, everyone. It's good to be back with Riley and to have Jana back with us. Welcome, Jana. Thank you. So happy to be here. Last time we had you on the show, Jana, we talked about a little bit about the stages of faith models that are out there, and we said we might have you back to talk about those in more detail, and so now we get to do that, and that's exciting. And I thought, why not start with that question that is a question that came up last time again, which is, where am I? That's a good place to start, isn't it? So where am I, meaning... To any given person asking, where am I? Yeah, in a contemplative sense, since contemplation is about noticing, the first question is, where am I? And, and of course, in this conversation, we'll talk about where am I in my faith, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that staging models can be helpful for that. Um, it's, it's hard to know where you are without having some sort of relativity to know what relative to what right where am I um, and and that's where staging models I think can be helpful um, it gives us a little bit of a map of of what the possibilities are what what our tendency can be is not just to stop at where am I but we also want to then categorize everyone around us <laughs> and I, I don't know that that's the best use of, of a staging model um, unless it is solely to uh, understand people around us. And that's where I find that they're the most helpful um, is less about where, where am I, but how do I relate to the people around me? And how can I understand where we're both coming from to facilitate understanding and communication? Brilliant. Is it more important to have those... Uh, staging models as as a tool to understand others or to understand ourselves or both? Kind of both in relation to one another is what I would say. Because I, I think any any personality test or any, you know, this this gets into, um, you know, if, you, if you're doing Myers-Briggs or if you're, you know, interested in those kinds of things, you know, it can be really interesting to understand ourselves a little better. Um, I see staging models as kind of a similar thing. But how it can be misused, especially in relationship, is to then, you know, use it as a weapon against another person to say, oh, you're being such a one on the Enneagram, or you're being such an ENTP, <laughs> and, and using it to pigeonhole people, because really no map can fully explain a person. There's the dictum of Stephen Covey from Seven Habits that the map is not the territory. Exactly. That's exactly right. Only the mariner knows that the map is not the sea. That's absolutely true, and it's important to keep in mind. So it's it's really important when you're doing any of these kinds of models to hold in mind that um, none of them is robust, none of them is perfect, and none is sufficient to really understand a human life. So, but... I still love them. I love them because they can help us understand ourselves, especially in a society and, and especially in our, our LDS um, tradition that tends to think of faith in particular as uh, there's one way to do it. And there's one way to develop faith that looks like one thing. So I appreciate the research of all of these developmental theorists who have shown us that there's actually a number of different perspectives that a, a, an adult can take over their lifetime and that things look very different from these, these different places. None are better, none are worse. They all come with their, their gifts and their 
uh, challenges, but it can help us understand why we, we and maybe people we know are looking at the same thing and interpreting it in two very different ways. Yeah, speaking to the, the idea that there's only one way to do it, you look around you and you realize it's not that hard to see that that's not true because there are so many individuals who are doing things, who are doing the thing, right? They're, they're having faith in their own way. And it's not that hard to discover that in, in talking with them and sharing with them. And yet there's this pressure to conform in some sense. So there's a tension there. Seems like that tension comes from believing that the map is a perfect representation of what it's referring to. And so they think, okay, well, the plan of salvation, that's a map. And, and it's a certain way of understanding the way God interacts with his children. And, and they might understand that map the way that it's unfolded by the leaders of the church, for instance. Or you, you mentioned Myers-Briggs or ENT or the Enneagram or astrology, for heck's sake. Those are all just examples and types of maps. And I really like that metaphor or symbol of, of the map as a way to understand what it's something else that it's referring to. And if we really look at that idea and say, okay, well, there's all kinds of maps uh, for, that represent physical reality. And the reason why we have different types of maps, maps is because there's so many different types of people interpreting the map. And some might connect with one way of interpretation better than another. And so you look at, for instance, a map of the globe. Well, first of all, there's the globe. And then when they try to flatten it out, it turns into like a series of W's or something connected. And so then, well, we don't like that as much because it doesn't make sense. So we're going to make it a rectangle. But then that means you have to expand certain parts of land in relation to other parts of land to represent <laughs> the spherical aspect of the earth. And so there's so many ways to represent the reality that the map is referring to, but there's no perfect way, right, for everybody. And to underscore the idea that there's no, that the map isn't the territory, there are so many other ways to represent a globe in a, on a flat map that we don't even know about, that most people don't know about. I don't know if you guys are aware, there's so many, you know, projections that we don't use. We're used to seeing the one projection in the classroom and that's it. Seems like I took that in a weird direction. Sorry, right. Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. So talk about some of the maps. So Jana, talk about some of the maps that you use in your practice. Yeah, so um, I, I use a number of them. Um, some of them are staging maps. Those are the ones that I think probably most of the audience is familiar with. You know, Fowler's Stages of Faith has been a big one that has um, come into our awareness. And his, his research was actually done back in you know, the early 80s. And it's, it's still valid research. But uh, so as far as faith goes, we've got, we've got that kind of a staging model. We've got this new book by Brian, Brian McLaren called Faith After Doubt. He introduces a four-stage model of faith. Um, and those are the two that I know that are, just, are specific to faith. Um, some of the other ones that get used, like some of Ken Wilber's models, spiral dynamics, you know, Thomas McConkie uses a stages model. Many of those models are uh, used to describe a whole, the whole range of human experience, not just the spiritual line of development. But they all, they all agree in that they all take people through these stages of awareness of of the world around them. So they all in some way start with a, an idea of being aware of yourself and your own life and, um, and sometimes thinking that everyone is having the same experience that you're having to going to a more we-centered focus that my group, there's my group versus your group. So I'm now in touch with how my group thinks about things. And then that expands even further to include more and more of people all the way to all of creation. So that's, that's kind of the basic idea behind them. And then each of them look at different aspects of our, of our experience. And, and then they break them up in different ways. Some stages have, have, some models have four stages, some models have 16 stages. So 
um, staging our growth is just one of the tools that I use, one of the maps that I use in my coaching. So there are four others that I use regularly, but this is a big one. This is a big one, especially in talking with people who are differentiating their faith among, um, you know, their their community, their church community, their families. Maybe they're experiencing something different. The way that we, we see that, as we talked about last time, is typically looked at they're doing something wrong. So the reason that these staging models are so helpful for people in that place is to understand that this is a normal part of faith development and that it it gives us all a way to give grace to one another that what another person is going through is not the right or the wrong way to do it. So Jana, in one of our previous episodes we called Cosmic Contemplation, we talked about awareness, uh, the, con- the contemplation of awareness at different resolutions. And earlier you talked about awareness as one of the, the prime uses of these models or these maps that you use in your practice. Can you help us to understand how these stage models or these different maps that you use can address different perspectives of faith? For instance, in Cosmic Contemplation, we talked about high resolution versus low resolution, taking the 30,000 foot view versus being right in the issue. But yet there are some stages of faith models that treat it somewhat temporally along a timeline. And so when, when do you decide what to use and, and what are the benefits of different models or maps that you use? So I may be misunderstanding what, what you're particularly pointing to, but one of the ways that um, Ken Wilbur and his integral model deals with this, which is what my, my coaching training is in integral, um, is he talks about states versus stages. So states is more about waking up. Stages is about growing up. So states would be uh, probably more what you're talking about in the episode that you did, which is states of consciousness that run from, you know, gross to subtle to causal to non-dual awareness. And anyone at any stage has access to these different states. If, if these states are nurtured, you can have access to any of them at any given time. Um, the stages is more of uh, the timeline. Like Those develop over time. And life typically brings us some sort of difficulty in dealing with life in the stage we're in that complicates it, that brings us into necessarily into a new stage and a new perspective. Um, and uh, the way Ken Wilber talks about this is then we transcend and include the stage, whatever stage you're in, you transcend and include it when you go to the next stage. And this is the way that development works. So it's not like you just leave everything behind. You include some of the parts and the, and the lessons learned from any given stage um, as you go into a different perspective. So, yeah, I, I find those to be really helpful to delineate that the difference between states and stages. And then also the other dimension that he talks about is cleaning up, which I think the cleaning up is something we do very well in our LDS culture, um, which is just, you know, taking responsibility for our behavior and, and uh, acting in moral ways. That was really helpful. The Cosmic Conscious episode, because it's really based on Plotinus's teachings, really was about states. And so that is different from stages, and I think we can see that clearly now. Jana, you mentioned in uh, our pre-discussion, our pre-episode discussion, that Ken Wilber uses five lenses, and you mentioned states and stages, but there's also lines, quadrants, and types. What can you tell us about those in terms of the dimensions that you're referring to? Yeah, so... um... One of the things that uh, that developmental uh, theorists have noticed is that development does not happen um, in a uniform lockstep way, right? Um, some people can be very 
developed in some aspects of their life and not so developed in other aspects of their life. So there are these lines of development, you know, and some of them that I work with in my coaching would be a cognitive line, moral line, spiritual, interpersonal, somatic, and emotional. Um, but there, there are a lot of, uh, there's kinesthetic. There are, there are a bunch of other different types of lines, you know, I think developmentalists have, have named as many as 24 are or more different lines. Um, so that's important to note as well, because just because we're very development, um, developmentally advanced, perhaps in a cognitive line does not mean that we have done the work on the emotional line, for instance. So it just, it's just a way to, to complicate the picture and to <laughs> no, notice opportunities. So when I'm coaching with someone, what I'm looking for is kind of where is a person um, in their development along certain lines and what opportunities are there for growth in ways that will help them do what it is they're wanting to do. Um, types, that would be any number of personality tests from Myers-Briggs to Enneagram. The one I studied for my coaching program was Enneagram. I find that to be really robust in um, developmental opportunities. And then the last one is quadrants. And this is this is one that's really kind of interesting. Basically, it has a grid of four quadrants. And the upper quadrants are dealing with an individual experience. The bottom quadrants are the a, a group or uh, community experience. And then the right sides of the quadrant are objective experience and the left sides are subjective experience. And the, he uses very technical uh, words for this. It's the upper left, upper right, lower right, lower left. <laughs> so um, how that, that comes into being, and you know, I know you guys have done a lot of study in philosophy, but, you know, if you, if you throw the, the truth, beauty, and goodness on top of these quadrants, um, the right side of the quadrant that is the objective sphere, that is, that's where you're, you're finding truth. And on the left side, the upper quadrant that is personal and subjective, that's where you're finding beauty. And on the bottom left, the lower left side, this is where goodness comes in. This is subjective experience between people. So um, where this gets useful is that typically all of us have um, kind of a, a preference in our personality for one of those. If we're an upper right person, we might be the, the doers, you know, we just want to get things done and have, um, have a structure to the way that we live our lives. And um, whereas like an upper left person who leans more into the subjective is a person who might not be very motivated to get moving unless you've given them a very good reason <laughs> for it, um, because they're tied more to their meaning. They're, they're uh, more interested in their inner lives. And then the lower quadrants have more to do with community. So um, uh, someone who, who orients from the lower left really is interested in how other people are uh, taking in things. And so they might want to ping off of somebody else before they really form an opinion um, for themselves. They need to really, you know, talk to other people about it. And people who orient from the bottom, from the lower right, those are people who need to kind of understand where they are in the structure, and then they can understand what their job is in relation to everybody else. So dealing more with the outer um, environmental factors. So um, when you take all of these different things into consideration, it, it you know, Ken Wilber, his, his idea is that all of human experience from sociology, um, philosophy, science, uh, spirituality, and so forth can be understood using these five maps. Can that be akin to saying something like all truth can be circumscribed in the one great whole? Yes, I would say that there's overlap there. You know, in fact, we were talking about his book, The Theory of Everything. That's kind of what he's trying to say, is that we don't have to have fights between all of these different experiences, that really it's all one great whole. So going back to the lines, Jana, I was reminded of 
Covey's book, his I think it was his first book. It's The Spiritual Roots of Human Relations. Great book. He talks about the idea that he talks about the days of creation and the idea that some of us are in on day one in certain areas of our lives and on day five or six in other areas and others maybe the other way around. And so what can be helpful then is that about that is that we can actually help each other, right? If I'm if I'm further ahead in one area than you are and vice versa, we can help each other by by contributing from our strengths to the to the weaknesses or maybe not necessarily strengths and weaknesses, but maybe further and lesser development or what have you. Is that is that something that figures in that model? I mean, absolutely. I think in a in a perfect world that that's exactly where we would go. We would we would um, see each other's strengths and weaknesses, and we would um, use those as opportunities to build the body of Christ. Right? We we need all different types doing it different ways, um, and that's really the the idea behind um, integral theory and integral coaching is how can we more thoroughly integrate ourselves, um, you know, to, to be a more whole person. But I think it takes all of us to make a whole society. I think in practice, however, um, unfortunately, most of the time, I don't think it works that way because I think our egos get involved. And then our, because if we're thinking through our egoic thinking centers, that is all about comparison. And now my ego's triggered. And now I want to make myself better than others, or I worry that I'm worse than others. Um, And when that when those ego, that ego consciousness really starts to take over, and we're asleep to that, then um, it doesn't work very well. Actually, we tend to want to group together with the people who are like us so that we can buoy ourselves up, or we find ways that we can feel superior to one another. And so we don't value the things that might be um, an opportunity for us to learn in other people. Boy, Ryan Holiday has a really deep insight in his book title, Ego is the Enemy. And I think, you know, and having read that book, a lot of what Ryan Holiday is dealing with in that book is how ego is the enemy to ourselves. But if we think in terms of community, it also gets in the way of our contributing to others. I agree. And I, I, I hesitate to make any part of us an enemy. So I understand his what he's saying. Um, I also think that that's not helpful to our psyches to make an enemy of any part of us. But I think that it is really important to become aware. We, we need our egos. Our egos are good defense. Um, you know, our egos try to keep us safe. We need that egoic center to be able to to navigate our lives. It, I think it's important, though, to notice, be be more aware, deepen our awareness of ourselves and how our ego tends to run us. And sometimes having to just say, thank you, ego, I've got this. <laughs> so that it doesn't, it doesn't run us into uh, problems in our relationships, um, which it absolutely has the tendency to do when we're not aware of what's going on. Good point. That reminds me of something I heard. Was it ego or was it fear? It may have been fear. Oh, yes, it was fear. It was Liz Gilbert talking about how fear, we don't want to make fear an enemy either. That's a natural part. And I think it's related, right? It's something that protects us like the ego. And so Liz was talking about how fear can come along on the car trip, but it doesn't get to drive. Absolutely. And And it doesn't get any say in what route we're taking, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think the the Pixar movie Inside Out was brilliant for this, right? Showing us that there is a place and a function and a need for all of the emotions. Um, I think especially in uh, religious circles, there can be a tendency to just want to experience the good. You know, I, I'll have clients who come in and want to start some sort of a mindfulness or meditative practice, and they'll come back to me and say, I don't think I'm doing this right, because every time I sit down, to do this, I, I get anxious <laughs> or I get whatever. And, um, you know, we, we tend to do this uh, spiritual bypassing, which is, um, Jacob Needleman said, don't make religion of your better moments. Um, 
in order to have the full robust experience of, of inner development, we need to also be able to welcome in the fear, the anger, the disappointment, the mourning, the sadness. It, it has, we have to take in all of that um, in order to really, truly transform ourselves. I, I don't think it's good to make an enemy of any of that. It is all useful information, and I think it's all, it's all our God-given gifts of ways to navigate our lives and to figure out what's going on in the world around us and inside of us. Amen. Boy, I really took, I love that. I really took that in with a deep breath too. I really felt that that tastes good. And you used uh, the word inclusion or include along with integration, and they're very similar. And I, I, I see a dovetail there with the atonement as well in terms of the, the reconciliation of all parts into the whole and, and kind of becoming one in that archetypal man, the perfect man, uh, Christ. So one of the questions I want to ask you, Janet, is, you know, in your work with Symmetry Solutions, many of your clients come to you in a crisis, but you also work with people on the coaching side who aren't coming to you in a crisis. You mentioned just a second ago, people who want to start a mindfulness practice, for instance, Tell us a little bit about how you work with people who are not in a crisis, because I think for many of our listeners who aren't in a crisis, something helpful for them would be to understand that this these different models and maps of understanding apply to all of us and can help all of us develop and enhance our discipleship in new and exciting ways. We don't have to, it doesn't have to be in response to some kind of a crisis. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, there's... I definitely do see a lot of clients who are in that place. And typically it's been brought on by, sometimes it's by a shift in development. And they're, because when we, when we make really big shifts between big stages, um, that can be a really disorienting time. So I do see a lot of people um, that are, that are experiencing that. Um, But yeah, there are people who come to me who just typically want to work on something within themselves and so what we do there is just try to define what it is that they, you know, what are the desires of their heart? What is something that is, that they fear is holding them back or um, that they want to work on, you know, whether it's in their career or in their personal life, is there something that they have the sense that if I could, if I could just find out how to deal with this difficulty, then, um, you know, things would go better for me. And so um, we just spend time talking about that and defining a topic, like what is the topic that they really um, want to work on? And they, they don't always have that defined before they come. Some do. Um, but we, we just spend some time figuring out what that is, what is it we are wanting to work on. And then I just um, ask all kinds of questions around it to understand how they're experiencing that, how they're seeing, how they're, how they're, um, you know, checking their world to, to see um, that they're okay in it. And from that, and from the questions that I ask, I, I tend to, you know, create kind of a map. Um, it's not something I typically share with them. I just use it for my own information, but I, I kind of map where the person is and, and for whatever it is that they're trying to work on, what are, what are the skills that would help them do that? Where, you know, what, what types of states of consciousness, what types of, um, of lines of development uh, would help them to focus on to achieve what it is that they're wanting to achieve. So that's kind of the way I, the way I work with those. I was watching a video uh, yesterday about caddies, golf caddies. And this, this, I don't know, you might like this metaphor or not, but, you know, I was thinking, uh, I watched this particular video where a guy who was a a very good golfer, you know, he's like a three or four handicap, which means he's probably better than 95% of golfers, but he wanted to see what the experience would be if he had an experienced caddy to help to coach him along. And so what he told the caddy ahead of time was, here's how far I hit each one of my clubs. Here are my tendencies. I, I tend to hook the ball or... I tend to fade the ball or I'm not a real long ball hitter 
or my weaknesses are that I can't chip very well. These are all different golf shots if you're not familiar with golf, but whatever. Um, the point is, is that the caddy took all this information and created what you just did, what you just said you do with your, your clients. And now that's a map for this particular, particular client. And then he physically went out and he walked a golf course that they were going to play the next day. And he used that map to construct a game plan for how this particular golfer was going to hit every single shot of a round of golf based on what he told him about himself. And so he said he played that golf course yesterday. He scored a four over par, which is good, but he wanted to try to get under par, which would be better. He went out with the caddy the next day and using the map, he scored a three under par. That's a seven shot improvement. And for anyone who golfs, that's huge. So sports metaphor metaphors don't always land for everyone. But for me, it you're bringing to mind this video that I watched about how important it is to have someone that is standing outside of your experience be able to give you feedback on things you already know about yourself, but help take them in a, an improved direction using that information in new new and creative ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. I think that uh, for whatever reason, it seems to be an integral part of human nature that we are somewhat blind to ourselves. You know, I, I, I think that just because uh, a, a certain kind of a professional, you know, for instance, like a marriage therapist, you look at the marriage therapist's life, they may not always have the best relationships, but it doesn't make them a, a poor therapist, right? They, some, they're excellent therapists who don't have a lot of insight into their own lives because it's a totally different skill set. But yeah, I, it, that's the benefit of, of having someone, a coach, a spiritual director, a therapist, a, a good friend, you know, someone who can tell you the truth that has a little bit of uh, perspective outside of yours to see what it can add. Um, where it can get dangerous is if you give your authority over to someone else besides yourself. But it can be um, incredibly useful to at least take in for consideration what someone outside of you sees. Yeah, we see this in business too. Consultants get paid big bucks for this, for, for bringing in outside perspective. And not only an outside perspective, but something else that you have, Jana, from your experience is the consultants have the same thing. They've worked with others in similar, if it's business in a similar, well, let's not say industry. Let's keep it the, the analogy closer. They, they worked with others in the same situation or in similar situations. So someone who is kind of coasting along and feeling like, you know, I'm not going through anything serious, but I just feel kind of blah right now. What would be the first steps from a practical perspective that anyone could use right now to kind of assess where they go from that point. And if I can just add to that question, and does it start with where am I? Is that where the stages can be helpful for us if we go into those a little bit? For sure. I mean, I, I think that it can be useful to understand where you are. But honestly, I think if you're truly in a place where things are feeling kind of blah, my guess is it would be pretty difficult for you to do this all on your own. I, I would say the first step is to engage a professional of some sort um, that would who would be able to kind of assess what you're going through because it is really difficult. The, the other thing you t can do, I suppose, is start a meditative practice and, and learn how to have a more 30,000 foot view of yourself in your own life, but that's going to take you years. Um, but, you know, maybe it's a both and approach. <laughs> So, Johnny, you mentioned that in working with people who are that you're coaching, you know, people who are you're coaching, that you sometimes map out where they are for you and you don't necessarily share that with them. I thought, well, that's really interesting. You know, this is cool because you're pulling back the curtain. You're showing us how what you do works. And that's interesting. At the same time, I, I sensed a little bit of a contradiction because earlier we said that it could be helpful to me to know where I am. Well, now you're knowing where I am, but you're not telling me if I'm working with you, right? So how does, help me understand that. Well, I mean, if I'm working with somebody, it, it's, I, I don't think the important thing is for them to really understand exactly what I'm doing. What is important is for me to share with them the developmental steps that I think that would be helpful for them to achieve what they're trying to achieve. 
So, um, so that's what I do share with them. And I, I lay out a map for them of here's what we're trying to achieve. Um, I often will offer metaphor. This is a metaphor of your way of being in this, you know, in this subject in your life. Here's a new way of maybe approaching it. Here's a metaphor for that. And then here are some developmental steps that I would recommend that we go through. And then I offer, and then I offer practices for living into them. Okay. That's really helpful. I think I understand better now. So if I'm, if I'm, it's not necessarily important for me to know where I am. It's important to know where I'm going and, and working with you, I can, I can maybe get a better sense of where um, I'm going or where I need to go. Now, if, if I'm not in the place that Riley mentioned where in this blah place, so in that place, I might need somebody, a professional to work with me. If I'm not in that place, how can I take this, this idea of stages of faith development and apply it? How can I understand it in a way that I can apply it myself? Okay, so are we talking stages of faith or more broadly? Because we've kind of taken this to a more broad place. We have. Yeah, help us out. What, what would you suggest? How would you approach it? This is what I would say for, um, I, I mean, I think stages of faith is a good place to go because it's more specific. It's, you know, the way that those mapping models can help is if you, if you read up on them, if you understand what they are, um, then it can help you really, the staging models are helpful for you to make sense of yourself. So very often what we want to do is use a staging model to get better. This is, this is a natural inclination is if I can know what the next stage is, that next stage will be better. I mean, how often do we do this in our lives, right? I'm, I'm in school. As soon as I've graduated, then life will get better. When I'm married, then life will get better. When I've hit these milestones, then then I'll have arrived and I'll be able to enjoy life. And what you recognize is that the next stage of life just brings with it more challenges. Um, and, and then we find ourselves longing for our youth when we were a little more naive. <laughs> it's, it's similar with these, these stages. Um, we, we long for, for going somewhere that we tend, that tends to be a value that we have in our American society and in our LDS culture. Um, but what I find is, is more useful in these developmental models is to understand where we are so that we can do what we are doing right now really, really well. And the development then takes care of itself. Life will bring you into new stages of development. And typically, it's not a pleasant experience. Typically, it's because something that you are, the way that you are approaching something no longer works. And that's almost always a painful experience. Jana, something you mentioned earlier is that going from one stage to another or being confronted with maybe a faith crisis is painful. And the imagery that immediately came to my mind is, is being born, the process of birth. And this metaphor that's used by Christ over and over is becoming as a little child or being born again is very appropriate to the idea of, of moving from stage to stage or from one state to another based on something that took place in your life. And it, it could be something like moving from the womb to outside the womb, or it can be, you know, you're confronted with something you have no control over, maybe a job loss or the death of a loved one, and it causes you to move in certain directions. And you, you put it in the way of saying life's going to throw these circumstances at you, and you don't always get to choose, right? And so how we respond to that and this process I think Christ referred to when he was talking about becoming as a little child. And our movement from stage to stage, whether we're conscious of it or not, is not necessarily a one-time event. This is a process, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think we do hit these points in life. Like you said, life will throw things at us, and um, we have to face the fact that something out of our control happened and we don't have most of us feel like we can move on if we have options there are options of um, things that I can do to uh, to improve this 
that at the end of the day, some things we do have to face that this, we did lose the job or that person who was close to us did die. And those are the moments that life brings us into this um, option of despair or deepen. And um, with support and with love, I think that we can move toward the deepening side of that. Um, and that is life inviting us into something new and and uh, more complex and that that um, brings in a perspective that we didn't know even existed before we had it. Within our culture, I would say that we have this very step-by-step way of understanding progression. And so we, we're an achievement-based culture. And so we take this one step and then all of a sudden we think, okay, that step's taken care of. And then we move on to the next step. And Christ gives us this model where he says, no, you got to be born again and not just one time, but it's like all the time. Yeah. And, and I think that where I, I liken that to these developmental steps is when we hit those moments of despair or deepen, a big part of the deepening is, you know, what the Buddhists call beginner's mind. So often what we have to do is unlearn the things that have not been serving us. It's, it's not that we have to add new skills and new things all the time. Sometimes we have to unlearn things that are no longer serving us. And so I think that's where you can liken it to what Christ is saying in becoming like a little child. Um, it's, it's like the, um, I'm losing the name, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Wendell, that doesn't sound right. Is that right? Oliver Wendell Holmes? <laughs> it says, the, the, the quote is, for the simplicity on this side of complexity, I would not give a fig. But for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. And um, I think that's a little bit what we're speaking to. You know, first half of life, I mean, we've, I, I think we used that expression in our, our last conversation together. But in first half of life, it is all about building the complexity. It's about the achievement. It's about understanding what, who we are and what we need to do to be successful in this life. Second half of life tends to be more of an undoing of all of those ways that we've built up our egos and, and safety nets and, and leaning into more of the juice and meaning of life, um, where we don't have to be front and center and successful in it, but we uh, lean into relationship and uh, ways that we can contribute to others in meaningful ways. I love that. And I, it makes me think of the, the whole, you know, two steps forward, one step back um, paradigm of, of progression in that, and, and that it's not a straight line. Uh, it reminds me of this scripture that I refer to a lot. It's in Philippians chapter two. And it says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, so this is pretty high up the pedestal already, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And the Greek there actually means he emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So he, he dropped to this low level and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, and here's the result of this backward movement that causes him to progress, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. What that teaches me is that, you know, a lot of times we get down on ourselves thinking, oh man, you know, this thing happened to me and now I've got to start over. And that starting over is a springboard or a trampoline into the next stage. And having that mindset of, you know, becoming as a little child, in, in a sense, starting over, and maybe the frustration that comes with that, but you get to retain the things that you've learned, which is the beauty of it. And what I heard in that quote you read was that you get, you get to retain the knowledge of things that you've already experienced. You don't have to put them back in Pandora's box because you can't, but yet you still get to have the opportunity to 
um, integrate and, and feel comfortable with those things as they are and still move forward with a new understanding, a better understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that beginner's mind is essential if we're going to um, not fight this new way of, of being, which again, the staging models are helpful so that we understand that there's purpose in what we're doing there. <laughs> um, that we understand that other people have been there before us, that this is not uncharted territory and that we can kind of relax into the experience. Um, one of the things that you read there from Philippians that I, it reminds me of an analogy that was used at um, the living school and they were, they were using it in terms of Trinity, but I, I think that this has application to all of us. Um, is they they use the symbol of a water wheel with you know three different buckets for you know Father Son Holy Ghost and they talked about how these three work together not in a static relationship but in a relational way and how as the as the water wheel goes around the bucket dips in and fills up all the water and on every round it completely empties itself out. It, it can just completely give itself away with the trust that on the next round, you're going to be filled up once again. That's a great metaphor. I love that. Awesome. So we're not going to dive super deep into these stage models, but we want to give people an idea of kind of where they lead. Uh, and obviously, again, this is, this is not only one eternal round, but multiple eternal rounds wrapped up into one. And so you will go, if you start to see yourself within these stages of faith models, you'll go through them and back to them and circle back around to the first and go back up to the top and, and whatnot. And it's a process, an ever-repeating process. But to give people an idea of some of the differences with, within these faith models, you mentioned McLaren earlier from a book called Faith After Doubt. His four-stage model is simplicity to complexity to perplexity to harmony. How would you describe what harmony looks like or feels like for someone who is maybe looking for something to aim at? Yeah, well, I think I, I, I think I'll just say a few words about each of those stages so that it makes sense when we get to harmony. And I, I can do this very simply, but if you think of a simplicity, simplicity is where we start with with any idea, which is um, you know, in, in relation to faith, um, that's the stage where we just believe, where we've just been taught these things. We take it in, we believe it, we follow the prophet. It all makes sense. Um, you know, we do what we're supposed to do and it keeps us safe and it works well for us. Um, the next stage is one of complexity where we start noticing that maybe not everything is as black and white. Maybe there's um, some nuance to it. Maybe there are more ways to see it. You know, maybe there are a few challenges, but there are ways to work through that. Uh, but definitely in that stage, we are still serving the, um, the ideals of simplicity, that that is just the way the world works. Perplexity is where we get into a real challenge. This is typically when people will come see me, is when now they've, they've found something so outside of the realm of what they expected based on what they've always believed and, and learned that it's not reconcilable. They don't see a way to reconcile. So it sends them down a, a path of deep questioning um, and, and perplexity is a great word for it. I, you know, there's trying to find ways to reconcile the, the cognitive dissonance that has come up in their lives. And then harmony is the place where we are able to now look back at all of those stages and see the beauty, the gifts that each stage has brought us. Typically, when you're in the middle of it, each stage tends to be a little leery of the other. You know, people in simplicity and complexity are not real excited about people in perplexity. And people in perplexity tend to look at the prior stages and say, what's wrong with them? They're not looking deeply enough. Why is this not problematic to them? And people in perplexity are always thinking the people in harmony are like woo-woo or you're just out there and you're too universalist with no, no uh, anchors. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're especially leery of stages that we have not tasted yet. 
harmony sounds like it, like in Ken Wilber's model, like it transcends and includes the other stages in this model. Is it that, does, and it is that right? It it starts to take on this feel of, you know, understanding that the world is not black and white, that there is so much gray that uh, that unity does not require uniformity. That unity can can be made up of very diverse uh, people and experience. Um, and it, it stops seeing all of the, the fight between all of the, the methods we use to come to truth, uh, whether that's religion, science, it starts to see that uh, all of it fits, that everything belongs, to, to quote a, a book by Richard Rohr, everything belongs. Um, and that, that's the hallmark of, um, of that last stage of harmony. For there to be unity, everything has to belong. It just makes sense. And we often talk about the path back to the garden, back to paradise. And that goes through those cherubim and the flaming sword, right? That means that we that we have to leave, we have to check our duality at the door. We have to come to a place of harmony. We have to come to a place of unity to access the tree in the garden, to taste of that, that fruit. Absolutely. And something that we, we, I think, uh, really cherish in our, our theology and LDS theology is this idea that salvation is not just an individual project, that it is something that we do together, we do with one another. And so the idea of a Zion people, you know, it was Joseph Smith's idea of the embodiment of the body of Christ and welcoming in all different kinds of but people, we tend to like conformity. We tend to like to do it the way that everybody else is doing it. And that's how we know that we are um, doing okay in life or we're going the right way. We're following the rules. That's, that seems um, good and safe. Now, Jana, some of us don't. Some of us really don't. <laughs> I, for one, don't. I, I don't tend to think in terms of doing it the way other people are doing it. There's that too, right? Absolutely. There are different personality types that, um, that lend itself more to that. And, and I think that's an important thing to notice. You know, some people are going to get to more complex stages quicker just because they don't resonate with the way that religious institutions tend to uh, thrive on that conformity. But that brings up a question, and that is how we've hinted at how we can do this wrong. In other words, how we can weaponize any understanding of the, the stages and realizing that different people are in different places. How do we do it right? How do we best support each other? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's going to sound like a really trite answer, but I think that we have to, um, you know, deeply bow to the dignity of one another that you know, understanding that there is this cornucopia of ways to be in the world. And uh, to get beyond that dualistic thinking of this is good, this is bad. And rather in terms of is this serving me? Is this not serving me? Is this making me into a better person? Is this not? Is this making me into a person who is uh, more open to the world? and to other people's experience. Is this helping me love my neighbor as myself? I think those are the, those are the questions that we should be asking ourselves. And, and each person is going to be doing it differently. Like I said, it's not as if people in simplicity are doing it wrong. They're not doing it wrong. And they may be asking different questions. They may be asking the question of, what do I do? What rules do I follow to make sure that I am safe? And I think that is, that is fine as long as we can have the humility and beginner's mind to um, just following the teachings of Jesus, right? To um, have the humility to say, maybe I don't know it all. Maybe that isn't another person's path. And so what do we use to, um, to know if we are safe? I think that we have to follow what Joseph Smith was trying to help us do, which is trust our own inner authority and trust in the spirit and, and really strengthen that idea of personal revelation 
and to use that as our own personal liahona. Using a lot of the the advice as a check and balance, but you know, even in the I know this makes us really nervous sometimes, but even in the life of Jesus, he he wasn't going to ask permission to heal the man on the Sabbath. He just saw a need and he healed the man on the Sabbath and caught some flack for it from the religious authorities, right? Yeah, ultimately we think that's because Jesus was right and they were wrong. So that brings up another question. How, what would you say to someone who pushes back against these ideas and says, well, but there is a right way and there is the model that we should conform to? Yeah, this is, this is, this is what later stages get accused of a lot is relativism. Right. And, and I think this is where Jesus is a really great example is he didn't throw out the rules. He didn't say, don't go to church. He, I mean, he was a synagogue going guy his whole life. He didn't throw out the religion. He didn't say, don't do any of it. I just think that he was so in tune with uh, this idea of loving his neighbor and, and showing us the example of what that is, that he knew how to do it skillfully. And, and this is why it is so important in development, actually, to do each stage very, very well. Because if we don't, if we get to a place of just wanting to break the rules because we don't like them, that is a very different stance, I think, than breaking the rules skillfully. That's a great answer. Thanks for that, Jenna. Again, pointing to the example of Christ, one of the things that he was really great about is using things that people already believed as a starting point. So, for instance, you know, he, he pulled out the scripture from Hosea 6.6, 6, which says, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. And so that made a lot of sense for the mind of a Pharisee who's looking at that and saying, okay, I, I, I also believe all the things that God teaches us. And when God teaches us that there is, you know, a bit of a hierarchy to how we treat the various commandments, and the highest of all is love, maybe I should pay more attention to the mercy over sacrifice. And, and so he brought uh, their attention or consciousness to this idea that, you know, there, there are more, there are weightier matters. There's a good, better, best to use the Dallin H. Oaks model to the way we evaluate these things. And so healing on the Sabbath, which is, which is greater, healing a man or observing the Sabbath. And it's, it's quite obvious, you know, that, and, and the way that he paints it uh, is using the authority of the scriptures that they already buy off on. So he's meeting them where they are. So I, I like that way of teaching. I, I agree. Um, and I also, I also think that, because I, I see this hijacked a lot, even the good, better, best, I see it hijacked, where people are putting so much pressure on themselves to find the best that, that I see people in a lot of pain um, because they feel like it has to be best rather than sinking into this idea that we never really know what is absolutely best in our lives, you know, especially as circumstances come our way. It's like the, the Buddhist parable of the, of the man who, um, the men who meet together to discuss their lives and the one says that my, my horse has run away. And the other says, you know, oh, that's bad. That's bad. And the man says, maybe. But then the next day, the, the horse uh, comes back and brings three more. And he reports this to his neighbors. Oh, and the neighbor thinks, oh, that's good. And he says, maybe. And then the next day, the man's son falls off of his horse and breaks his leg. And the other man says, oh, that's bad. And he says, maybe. And then the next day he comes and he says, the army came to conscript my son into service and they left him because he was injured. And finally the man says, who knows what's good and what's bad. <laughs> I love that story. And I, I think it's important to keep in mind because there, we, we do put so much pressure on ourselves, so much pressure. If it's one thing I could say that our culture needs balance in, it's in leaning into acceptance of what is and that regardless of what it is, it will be good enough because it's your path and that is what's best and that that map is written within yourself. Jenna, even given the, the, the great answer that you gave, 
I just can't resist asking you this. What do we say? Gosh, I forgot. So I'm thinking, you know, again, how do we reconcile the the idea that the that that story you shared is teaching, which is that I don't know if it's real. Is it saying nothing's wrong? I think that's that's a story that teaches a, a Buddhist idea that nothing's wrong. That incorporates as we mentioned earlier, bringing the ego in, bringing fear in, instead of pushing them away and making them the enemy, to actually incorporate them and maybe transcend and include and harmonize. How do we, I'm really asking the same question I've already asked you again, to see what kind of more we can get out, you know, get out of you, to to really express you, right? Or to have you express yourself. How do we how do we make that Buddhist idea jive with our with our idea that there is the way? Yeah, I think it's really hard. <laughs> I think it's really hard and almost impossible in our rational minds. Um, one one interpretation of um, uh, much of Jesus's teachings is in um, a wonderful book called The Wisdom Jesus by Cynthia Bourgeau where she uh, talks about how much she points out how much Jesus taught in paradox, you know, and losing your life to save it. And, and so many other teachings, strong shall be weak, all of that. And that some of his parables were meant to scramble our brain because it flies in the face of every, uh, notion of fairness any of us have ever had <laughs> zen koans from jesus yeah yes it's it's the pair exactly it's the the parable of uh the prodigal son or the two sons um it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard you know getting the same pay at the end of the day in the beginning of the day um and she walks through this beautifully but the, the idea is that one of the things that he was uh, inviting us into, you know, the word repentance, um, if you break it down to the Greek, was metanoia, meta being large, bigger, um, and noia being a way of thinking. So that he was inviting us into a bigger way of thinking that was not so driven by this comparison, good, better, best, right, wrong. It is this way. Can we say a more inclusive way of thinking? Absolutely. It's, it's a way of dropping into your heart center, away from purely a thinking center, to experience what it is to be like God, to experience what it is to uh, love your neighbor in such a way that it scrambles all of the, the lovely questions you are asking, right? Which is nothing... Nothing matters and everything matters. It's it's the paradox that that you see in just about every wisdom tradition in a contemplative the contemplative wisdom traditions. This is where they end up. And yet Jesus still knew how to speak the language of simplicity to people who are in that frame of mind. Absolutely. And that's that's the beauty of harmony. <laughs> the worth of a soul is great and Moses sees that he's nothing, right? And both are true at the same time. You know, there there are books that compare uh, the teachings of Jesus and the Buddha, and they do, they're saying the same things uh, sometimes, if not all the time. That's exactly right. It's it's diving into this idea of paradox and opposition in all things and that great thy mind, O man quote. I don't know if you've, you've talked about that on your podcast before. I- no, but we need to read that from Joseph Smith. That's good stuff. Have we talked about that? We have. It's come up. Uh, at least uh, Travis brought it up, but we'd love to share that again. So this quote by Joseph Smith, The things of God are of deep import, and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul into salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens, and search into it and contemplate the lowest considerations of the darkest abyss and expand upon the broad considerations of eternal expanse. He must commune with God. Um, and he, he said this in a letter to Edward Partridge, that the, the idea being that 
you know, we, we've touched on this a few times in the time we've been speaking, but it requires the good, the dark, the light, the, the good, the bad, all of experience, integrating all of it in order to uh, move us toward atonement, right, and being one with God. And it's something that our, our minds and our rational minds and the way that we are programmed to move through this world does not easily grasp. And so to me, the message is, and, and the message that I see in so much of Christ's teachings in his life is that we have to take it all in and get out of our brains because our brains will never be able to answer the questions that you're asking. Um, that really great question you asked me a moment ago, Christopher, like you, you can't reconcile all of these things in your head. And yet, if you drop into your experience, if you drop into your heart, if you contemplate all of it, you will have an experience with the divine that will make your life, your, your path, it will make that apparent to you. And when you know, you know. Yeah. And this quote from the same prophet who told us, well, who told his closest companions that if he were to tell them everything he knew, they would want to kill him. Yep. Because that always seems dangerous when someone has touched on something, experienced something uh, more than we have, it, it often looks dangerous. And it sounds to me like Joseph Smith recognized that. More than what fits in our heads, right? We need the eye of the heart to see these things. Absolutely. Which which is why we need contemplation. <laughs> right. This is what the, this is what contemplation is about. This is what the contemplative tradition, i.e. the mystical tradition is about. It's about dropping into the eye of the heart and experiencing unity. Until that point it's something that you will never be able to explain in your words. We can only point to it. But each person has to taste it themselves to know. Yeah. Well, perhaps what we could leave our listeners with is this quote one more time. I just think it would be great to read slowly and evenly and let people hear it one more time, the thy mind, O man, quote. He says, The things of God are of deep import, and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the lowest considerations of the darkest abyss, and expand upon the broad considerations of eternal expanse. He must commune with God. I think we can get more insight in talking with you more, Jana, but I don't think we'll find a better stopping place. Thank you so much for being with us again. It's been such a pleasure. You bet. Thank you for having me on again. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. See you next time. Have a great week. Bye.